0: Welcome to the CEC Report, it's the 23rd of November, I'm Robert Bowick, and I'm joined today by CEC researcher and engineer, Jeremy Beck. Welcome Jeremy. Thanks Robbie. In this week's CEC Report, don't steal our deposits to prop up banks, amend the bail-in law. And second, the thorium nuclear solution to Australia's energy problems. Now, Jeremy, before we get into it, I just want to um, We've got some explosive material here that is really going to fuel our fight against bail-in. So before we go into the details, I want the listener to be attuned to, you know, we constantly tell you this, but it's really important you get involved. We don't produce information just for passive consumption, right? We find out this material because we're fighting it. And the best way to fight it is with the population behind us actually acting. And so... Um, the calling your Member of Parliament, getting, getting into the, the mode where you're in regular contact with the people that represent you in Parliament is far better than just complaining about these problems, right? Mm. Because it works. It actually works. Now, it, sometimes it takes a long time, right? I mean, we've been fighting bail-in since 2013, mm. and we'll talk about that. Um, but, uh, you know, some, when, when you get progress, it can happen very fast. And this year, a lot of the progress we've had is on the back of people like yourself when we say, contact your member of parliament, make a call, send an email, actually doing it. And they notice that kind of public interaction with them,
1: right? And, and right now, the politicians are on knife edge. The politics is very That's unpredictable. Right. Exactly. They're very sensitive about these things. And, and if you knock on their door, give them a phone call, uh, they'll take much more notice now than maybe they would have a few years ago.
0: Exactly. So this is one of those times when where we, you know, I know we think the system's rigged, and it's all, you know, never convince yourself there's nothing you can do though, because that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. This is an opportunity, a window of opportunity to do something, so please get involved. And you the way to do it is contact our office. If you, if you want more information, call us on the 1800 number. You get a copy of the Australian Alert Service, which is our weekly publication. Um, this week's copy of the Australian Alert Service will give the details of what we're about to go through. Plus, there's an article in there that I urge people to read, not just because I wrote it, but because of the subject matter. It's about derivatives. And I've tried to explain there what, you know, you need to know about derivatives and just what a threat they are to the system. And um, so get that sort of material under your belt and make sure you challenge members of parliament on these issues. All right. So that said, let's get into it. Don't steal our deposits to prop up banks. Amend the bail-in law. And... um, just a preface to this, Jeremy, because the you could think of when we talk about bail-in, it's the op- the opposite of bail-in is Glass-Steagall. So bail-in is the idea that a, a bank is failing because of its dodgy activities, mm. right? Like derivatives, um, which is just gambling. So the authorities say, well, we don't want that bank to fail because they've, they've made those derivatives bets with lots of other banks around the world. Therefore. We need to stop it from failing like Lehman Brothers did by grabbing the deposits and the money of its unsecured creditors, they're called, to keep that bank going so it doesn't default on all its obligations to the the other banks it gambles with, right? That's bail-in. The opposite of bail-in is Glass-Steagall, which is break up the banks so that those banks with deposits are not allowed to gamble, therefore they won't get into trouble in the first place, and if they don't get into trouble, your deposits are secure. That's that's Glass-Steagall, right? So... We, our ongoing campaign to get a Glass-Steagall separation um, in Australia is, is, you know, um, motoring along. This week, I just want to highlight a couple of um, developments on that. You had, in response to the Royal Commission's hearings, which are underway in Sydney right now, um, you had two former senior Labor people, uh, Nick Sherry, who was a minister in the Gillard government. And Steve Brax, the former Premier of Victoria, both of them are now involved in industry super. And at a symposium in Sydney this week, they called for the banks to be broken up, Mm. right? So the the chorus is growing louder. Another development is the government right now is um, talking about passing a law, an antitrust law, an American-style antitrust law, where they will have the power to break up vertically integrated electricity companies Right? Because, you know, we've got all those high electricity prices and whatever, and, and this is seen as one of the ways you might have to deal with it. So stop the, stop the electricity companies exploiting their market, break them up. Well, Senator Barry O'Sullivan, who's the senator who um, crossed the floor a few weeks ago in support of the motion in the Senate to break up the banks, he said, well, I'm going to move an amendment to that law so that those powers to break up a company don't just apply to an electricity company, but they should be able to be applied to all companies like that are too big and dominate the market, including banks. And of course that's his main motivation, right? So this is, the theme is growing. More and more people, they keep coming back to this point. The theme, you know, that, what are we, is, is separation inevitable? Well, it better be because otherwise you're not gonna save the banking system that, in, in the sense that you're not gonna save the, the, the part of the banking system that we need, right? That, that the Australians depend upon. So that's, that's some good progress. The real progress though is this. Um, the, we've had this breakthrough in the fight on bail-in because finally we've received for the first time an honest appraisal from a member of parliament about who is from the government actually about what the bail-in law that was passed back in um, February on Valentine's Day in February what it actually means. Now this, can, this cannot be overstated how significant mm-hmm. this is because. Jeremy, we've been fighting bail-in for uh, oh, six years. Since right? 2013. Since 2013. Mm-hmm. Show, the, show the audience what we did at the end of 2013 there. Well, this is a,
1: a full-page ad that we took out in the Australian newspaper. Don't seize our bank deposits, accounts, pass Glass-Steagall. And there's and hundreds
0: of signers on
1: that there's for a statement. There's councillors, there's former elected officials, uh, there's election candidates, candidates, there's union leaders, there's academics, there's everyone. Uh, we we're calling them all. We we're organising them all. That was back in 2013. And I spoke to several of them. And we've got a lot on board and a lot are still active in this campaign now.
0: Now, that, so that was, we, we raised a lot of money. We put, we put that ad in the Australian newspaper, a full-page ad that wasn't cheap. Um... We got very little mainstream media coverage for it, but what we did do is start putting politics here on notice. And what's happened as a result of that is Australia is one of the few places in the world where the government had to deal with a public backlash against this bail-in plan. Because everywhere else bail-in has been passed, there's been no public backlash. The public haven't even known about it. So they passed it in, in the United States, they passed it in the UK, they passed it in, in Europe, they passed it in Canada earlier this year and trumpeted, oh, but now I've got this wonderful bail-in law, because no one had known really what it was about and they hadn't protested it. But here, we made such a stink about it, right, that what we've had ever since from the government is lies. They've motivated to lie because they've made a commitment to pass bail-in, but they've thought you know, if we do this, if the public know that we've got to steal their, de- we've got a system where their deposits can be gone, we'll taken, we'll be crucified, right? Mm-hmm. The only other country that's that's had this um, protest like Australia is India. Mm. This year, they, they the Indian government put up a law the same time as our government did. Um, there was a big backlash in India, mm. which came on the back of there was a there was a silly thing the government did over there to um, make people uh, trade in their currency for a larger denomination currency. And a lot of little Indian people were very unhappy with how that went. And when they heard that this bail-in law was going to come, they said, no way. The Indian government was forced to withdraw the law. Mm. So what's happened here, though, instead of our government withdrawing the law, they snuck it through Parliament on Valentine's Day with only seven or eight senators present in the Senate, right, and not an actual vote where there was a division. Instead, they had um, just just passed on the voices. If they had have called for a, a division... They would have had to ring the bells and there were two senators for One Nation outside of the chamber and they had just approached the government about wanting to move an amendment to this law to make sure it excluded deposits. Mm. They would have had to come in right, to mm. vote, realise that their amendment hadn't been put up mm. and they could have thrown a real spanner in the works and that's why they, they didn't actually have a proper vote on it. So this is, the, this is just the backdrop. This is a government that has wanted to make sure they sneak this through. And I'm going to digress here a bit. Because if you don't believe that government agencies are capable of conspiring to lie, to do things to protect the banks, today's Sydney Morning Herald, or the 22nd of November Sydney Morning Herald, so yesterday, there's an article by um, Sarah Dankert and Clancy Yates reporting the, what's happened at the Royal Commission yesterday, where um, ASIC was on, the, Royal, was on the, uh, the, the stand and Rowena Orr showed a letter, an ASIC letter, from July this year, where the the letter was from an ASIC uh, officer named uh, Foo, Kevin Foo, and he's reporting the former ASIC boss Peter Kell saying should we bother to take action against the bank? And this is the wording of the letter. Um, in this Foo's email said Peter Kell wanted to test these ideas and tempered the discussion with comment that taking no further action no further action might be the right decision, I let the bank off the hook, and this is a kicker, we just need the right narrative. In other words, how can we let the, the Royal Commission's causing this big stink, but we don't really want to go off this bank, how can we let it off the hook, we just need to, we, we, we need to figure out a way to do it and just need the right narrative. right? That's what happened in ASIC in July this year. These agencies are fully capable of conspiring to lie, to do things to protect the banks, and that is what has happened in the case of Bailey. So this is the breakthrough that blows it up though. um, uh, So we've had, uh, just a contrast, so on the 1st of March this year, Senator Jane Hume, who was the chair of the committee that that went through this, she said um, uh, in a letter explaining the bail-in law, she said, while I appreciate the concerns raised by the CEC, I can assure you that this bill does not constitute what some are referring to as bail-in legislation. Treasury, the RBA and APRA all confirmed in their answers that the bill is definitely not bail-in legislation. That's what she said, the chair of the committee. She's a banker. Well, a new senator named Senator Stoker, Amanda Stoker, who is a barrister, a very highly qualified barrister, she wrote a reply to to a constituent on the 5th of November this year, two weeks ago, and this was what she said. Quote, the legislation facilitates bail-in as a type of resolution power which is available for dealing with financial institution distress. This was done after the G20 leaders endorsed a new Financial Stability Board standard for total loss absorbing capacity. Specifically, it builds on the key attributes which specifies that Financial Stability Board jurisdictions should have in place legally enforceable mechanisms to implement a bail-in. The purpose of the total loss absorbing capacity standard ensures there are mechanisms in place to stop the domino effect and reduce loss on banks, shareholders, creditors, and the government," end quote. That is the single most accurate description of bail-in to come out of this government
1: in six years. So which government MP do we believe? The one that says it is bail-in or the one that says it isn't bail-in? Exactly. Well, (laughs) because, Jeremy, um,
0: we've had all... uh, Every other MP has got their information from the Treasury, Mm. which is part of the conspiracy to get bail-in in. This woman, the Senator... She appears to have either done her own research mm. or maybe got a, from went to the Parliamentary Library instead. And someone who's an experienced in Parliament pointed out to me, maybe because she's new, she didn't realise she had to go to Treasury, mm. right, and get the spin, the narrative, to <laughs> quote Kevin <laughs> Wu, and instead just said, well, okay, research the bill, okay, this is what it is. And what she said is accords with everything we've always said. The only question left outstanding is bail-in of what? We know it's a bail-in law. Bail-in of what? And that's where the mobilisation now is, we have an opportunity. There's the, 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 this proves there is confusion in the government's own ranks. They don't have a straight story on this. Now is the time to demand that, 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 we, that the government do what One Nation tried to do back in February. Amend this bill. You, the government, claim it, you will not bail in deposits. You've got a vaguely worded bill here that leaves a loophole as big as a truck to drive through that can be used to bail in deposits. If you are serious, if you're genuine, amend the bill to just insert words that it excludes deposits. Simple, mm. right? Demand they do that. So we're, we're asking everybody get on the blower. If you need the information, what I've just read out is on our website, the press release we put out this week. Make a phone call, visit your MP, send an email, say, this is the latest on this. You guys must amend this bill, right? This is very important because what it does will either achieve the amendment of the bill. Well, we'll smoke out the government, right, and prove once and for all that they're just there to protect the banks, right? And then the political consequences for that in this current climate, as we said, will be huge. All right, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have to change the subject on this to energy and thorium. Welcome back to the CEC report. The thorium nuclear solution to Australia's energy problems. Now, Jeremy, we wanted to do this because um, we evoke controversy on many things. <laughs> and the latest one is the CEC issued this five-point program to survive a, um, economic crisis, for Australia to survive economic crisis. One of those points is the importance of investment in infrastructure. And we emphasise there that the infrastructure should include science driver projects. Mm-hmm. And we name, as examples, a space program and nuclear energy, right? And of course, nuclear energy. So um, let's address it. Nowadays, there's growing support for nuclear energy, as we know, because of climate change. Um, Now, I'm not going to let you debate that because you could all day. So (laughs) uh, that's not our motivation, though. Mm -hmm. Why is nuclear energy progress when it comes to energy compared with, say, solar and wind energy?
1: You have to look at the history of civilization and, and how did we get to where we are now with an industrial civilization, with, with all the science and technology that we have, it didn't happen out of magic. It's only been in the last couple of hundred years or so that civilizations developed to the point where life expectancy has gone up, the standard living has gone up and that's happened through energy density and originally you know, cavemen, you know, before they came up with fire, life was pretty short. And, yep. uh, you, know, you couldn't do much. Fire was a huge transformation in, into civilization when, when they figured out how to harness fire. And then for many thousands of years, civilization just more or less went along the same level and nothing much happened.
0: Because that was our main energy source. Yeah.
1: Until then you had the, the next breakthroughs when they started burning coal. And that was a massive transformation. And coal succeeded
0: in displacing wood because it was a greater energy density.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, when 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 you look at the the amount of uh, you know kilojoules per kilogram or however you want to measure it, uh, coal is more energy dense, uh, and that that allowed for all sorts of new breakthroughs which improved the living conditions. Uh, and then we found petroleum originally is just some you know gunky stuff that you know, a bit of sludge you find in the earth, and then you found that you could. Yeah, you could uh, refine that and and use that for for cars and trucks and so forth. Uh, then came along nuclear, which is another enormous leap forward because in density in density because you, you have a look at the the amount of energy for one kilogram of of uranium or, or thorium as we 're looking at today it's it 's thousands and thousands of times more i mean I, I put out this article that I wrote and I had one tonne of thorium is equivalent to 200 tonnes of uranium, is equivalent to 3,500,000 tonnes of coal. Uh, Now, that's a massive shift uh, of energy density, and that that means you can have cheaper energy. And all these people say, oh, no, nuclear is expensive. It's lies. It's all about the cost of financing and so forth.
0: Well, look, so we want to talk about thorium specifically Mm. because you wrote an article Mm. on it. But before we do, because we're going to take a break, before we go to the break, watch this clip from a video by a scientist named Kirk Sorensen. Look at this clip. And then when we come back from the break, Jeremy can elaborate more on it.
2: People say, is nuclear energy safe? And the first thing I say is, well, which one? Thousands of different ways to do nuclear energy. Is the car safe? Well, which one? I had the good fortune to learn about a different form of nuclear power. The liquid fluoride thorium reactor. We can fully burn up the thorium in this reactor versus only burning up part of the uranium in a typical light water reactor. It's not based on water cooling and it doesn't use solid fuel. It's based on fluoride salts as a nuclear fuel. You have to heat them up to about 400 degrees Celsius to get them to melt but that's actually perfect for trying to generate power in a nuclear reactor. Here's the real magic. They don't have to operate at high pressure. They don't have to use water for coolant, and there's nothing in the reactor that's going to make a big change in density. Unlike the solid fuels that can melt down if you stop cooling them, these liquid fluoride fuels are already melted. In normal operation, you have a little piece of frozen salt that you've kept frozen by blowing cool gas over the outside of the pipe. If there's an emergency and you lose all the power to your nuclear power plant, the little blower stops blowing The frozen plug of salt melts, and the liquid fluoride fuel inside the reactor drains out of the vessel, through the line, and into another tank called a drain tank. In water-cooled reactors, you generally have to provide power to the plant. To keep the water circulating and to prevent a meltdown. But if you lose power to the lifter, it shuts itself down all by itself without human intervention. A staggeringly impressive level of safety, even if there's physical damage to the reactor. Thorium is a naturally occurring nuclear fuel that is four times more common in the Earth's crust than uranium. It's so energy dense that you can hold a lifetime supply of thorium energy in the palm of your hand. We could use thorium about 200 times more efficiently than we're using uranium now. Because the lifter is capable of almost completely releasing the energy in thorium, this reduces the waste generated over uranium by factors of hundreds and by factors of millions over fossil fuels.
0: Welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing the thorium nuclear solution to Australia's energy problems. So Jeremy, they have saw that clip before the break, but just mm-hmm. in your own words, what are what the benefits of thorium?
1: There are several benefits. Uh, the, the entire thorium can be used in a traditional uranium reactor. There's, there's only a, a very small amount of the uranium-235 that can be used as a fission yeah. you know, fuel. With thorium, the entire lot can be used. Now, you have to convert it into uranium, what's called uranium-233, uh, by bombarding of neutrons. Uh, but that's, the entire lot can be used. And also, it, it, it's very difficult to make nuclear bombs out of it. Not impossible, but very difficult. Uh, and, and the safety is enormous when you look at the, the kinds of reactors, such as what we saw in the clip before, the kinds of reactors that are used, such as the molten salt reactor, such as the, uh, the pebble bed reactors, there's a meltdown is impossible. Uh, now that's,
0: that said, mm. although these other, the existing nuclear re- uranium reactors are these high pressure, mm. you know, chamber ones, water cooled things, they still, apart from one of like three dramatic examples, mm. they still have an, incre- an impressive safety record. They do. Mm. These reactors take that level of safety up a whole new, uh, a whole uh, extra layer.
1: Not much more. So uh, a meltdown's literally impossible rather than very unlikely. Uh, where, is the,
0: it, where is it being developed?
1: If you have a look at in, in India, they've made several breakthroughs, they've got the only reactor in the world which uses this uh, Uranium 233, uh, which normally it's Uranium uh, 235, so uh, that they breed using thorium, they, they breed this new rea- uranium, which is not normally found in nature. And uh, India China, is one of
0: two countries that have more, uh, only two countries have more thorium than Australia.
1: Yeah, yeah. Brazil, and Brazil Brazil, and, and India's got the, the most uh, thorium in the world. Uh, so Australia's got an enormous amount. There, there's so much in the world that you'd never run out. What's China uh, Chi- doing? China, uh, they've got the biggest uh, program for uh, these uh, molten salt reactors. Uh, so that that's coming along. Uh, you've got uh, um, the, the world's biggest program there and India and numerous other countries. But, but in China, uh, they're, they're investing billions and billions of dollars towards this. So I, I think at the end of the day, you know, it, it's going to be the future. You're having a look at um, what's just happened. I, I wrote my article about in, in the, uh, the latest um, UN meeting, you had the, um, the head of the Indian Mission there calling for the use of thorium and saying how, how much suited it is in terms of nuclear proliferation, in terms of its safety record. I, I think overall... We,
0: we've got this picture there that was also in the clip about yeah. the energy density. It yeah. is so much... Is so in, this particular element has, is so energy dense, it's not funny.
1: Yeah, well, you have a look at uh, a tiny little ball of thorium in, in your hand. That could supply your energy for the entire life. Just that little ball of thorium in your own hand. Just quickly, Um, Jeremy,
0: the other thing that comes up for even among the people that become pro-nuclear, are the cost, the cost, the cost. We have an example in 2016 where there was an inquiry in South Australia into a possibility there, Mm -hmm. just in nuclear in general, and they said, no, it's too cost prohibitive. But what was the problem with that inquiry?
1: Well, that was the the Royal Commission in in South Australia. They they said, look, nuclear is all fine and safe. But uh, oh, it's too expensive. They said, oh, hang on, it's going to cost nine billion dollars to build a, a nuclear reactor of 1,100 megawatts. That that's ridiculous because a lot of nuclear experts will tell you it costs half that. But they were talking about a cost of finance of 10% of cost on capital. Now, uh, there's no way in this world of record low interest rates at 10% and is if reasonable. the government
0: does it. Yeah. If the government does it. They yeah. can do it at government rates, yeah. very very low. And yeah. so that, that's rubbish. And these yeah. these should not be private projects. The government yeah. should do it. Yeah. All right, Jeremy, we've run out of time as usual. Thanks very much for your contribution. Call in for a copy of his article in the alert service. Thanks for joining in.